This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live show for the courageous discussion of emotionally charged topics. Tonight is the second of an ongoing series on shame. My guest tonight is Brene Brown. We'll be looking at some of her research on shame. Brene is on the faculty of the University of Houston as a researcher on the subject of shame and vulnerability. She's the author of a book called I Thought It Was Just Me, Women Reclaiming Power and Courage in a Culture of Shame. Brene also leads workshops nationally on the subject of shame, and she's coming out with a new book this fall on imperfection. Welcome to Safe Space, Brene. I'm here. Oh, great. Welcome to Safe Space. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here tonight. So I want to ask you, you know, by definition, most people avoid shame. Some people say it's the thing we would least rather feel of all possible feelings. And yet you chose to go toward it and study it and write about it. And I'd love to hear, what is it about shame that drew you to it? You know, it's, it's a really good question because I think, I don't think that I knew what I was getting into, to be honest with you. Um, you might have run for the hills if you'd known in advance. I, I don't, I, you know, it's one of those things that I'm really grateful that I didn't know what I was getting into um, because it's fundamentally changed my life and I think um, it's enabled me to do some important work and work that I feel good about. I think if you go back the furthest, I had never even thought about shame, to be honest with you, until I was i was like a young student working on my bachelor's degree in social work, and I was working in a residential treatment facility in the hill country in Texas, uh, where I live and where I'm from, and we had a very difficult um, situation. I worked with adolescent girls. Um, again, these, are, these were kids much in treatment. Parental rights had been severed. And we had a very difficult situation where one girl had attempted suicide, another girl had tried to run away. Mm. And it, we kind of went on lockdown, and everything got very difficult, serious. Um, the kids were acting out. I think we were acting out. And the clinical director called a meeting and said, um, I've really been watching the way that you're engaging with the kids since the crisis, and I need you to, I need you to understand that you cannot change someone's behavior by shaming them. And how did you understand what that meant? Like you guys were trying to do that and it was not working? Or that it was having a destructive impact? I'm not hearing you anymore, Brene. I don't know if we've lost you again. Maybe the connection is gone. Maybe try to call her again. I don't know what seems to be the problem with the phone line. So while I'm waiting for my guest to come back on the air, I'm going to just talk about my understanding of that, which is I remember when I was in college being told by a kind of a mentor of mine that if you want to change something about yourself, you don't hate it. You try to first make friends with it and accept it. And I remembered thinking... That was absolutely crazy and ludicrous and didn't make any sense to me. But I think that's very much what Brene is getting at, that when we try to change something by shaming it, by hating it, by criticizing it, in fact, the likelihood is that we may reinforce it. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Brene while I'm waiting and why I wanted to do this interview. Um, Brene has identified some key categories about which 
many women feel shame, and these are categories that we know about, like motherhood, appearance and body image, speaking out. And she has this wonderful exercise where she invites people to talk about how they want to be perceived in these categories and then how they're afraid to be perceived and how that evokes shame when we're perceived in ways that we feel that make us feel badly about ourselves and as if no one would want to be with us. It makes basically, uh, Brene writes about shame as the feeling of being alone, exposed, flawed, and as if no one would want to, to be in relationship with you and that you kind of deserve it. There's this feeling of deserving it, like I'm no good, I'm not enough, and I deserve that way that people are treating me and disconnecting from me, <clears throat> which I think really gets to it. She also addresses in her book a really a controversial a controversy around whether shame can ever be useful. My guest last week likened shame to blood pressure, where, Bernie, are you there? I'm here. Oh, you're here. Have you been listening to me talk for a while? I haven't, but I've been telling this really long story that I was thinking, <laughs> I should check in. This might be too long for radio. And I was like, hello? I missed the whole thing. Meanwhile, <laughs> I've been trying to summarize your book in a monologue here on the air while, while Jen has been frantically calling you five times. It was so funny because my cell phone was going off and I was thinking, I'm on the radio telling a story. Shh. I know, right? <laughs> Probably should. I'm back. You're back. Okay. I was explaining why it was yeah. that I really wanted to talk to you, and I was actually um, wanting to move on in some ways to your definition of shame. I, expl- sure. I gave my response already to the story about you can't change people through shame, but I think in the interest of time, we'll keep going. Sure. So tell me how you define shame. Well, it's interesting because the way I do research is I don't start with a definition or a theory and then try to prove or disprove it. I go out and collect stories and listen to people's experiences and then build a theory from those experiences. And so the way I define shame is that it's this intensely painful belief or feeling or even fear that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging, that we are not you know, fill in the blank, not blank enough, that we're not good enough, thin enough, pretty enough, smart enough, successful enough, sober enough, um, that we're not enough to be worthy of love and belonging. At the same time that we so wish for love and belonging, presumably. Well, one of the things that I can, you know, that I you know, love to talk about is in some of my new research that, you know, I talk about subjects that we'll never fully know or understand because they happen in that space between people. But the one thing that I'm really, I have to almost say certain of after doing 10 years of this research is that love and belonging is an irreducible need of men and women and children. Yes. That when we do not experience a sense of love and belonging, we break. We suffer, we hurt, we hurt others, we act out, we numb. Yeah, so in other words, the experience of shame of feeling unworthy ah. to have this absolutely essential need be met. Yes. Which is a kind of a helpless, doomed feeling. It's horrible, yeah. It's really... And the thing about shame that is so frustrating for me is that because I was so immersed in it, I forget what a kind of volatile topic it is for people. People have a visceral reaction to even the word shame. Um, But for me, I guess after interviewing, you know, close to 5,000 people, I have 11,000 stories right now. Oh, my goodness. Um, You know... I just feel like, God, let's talk about this because we all have it. Like, we all have this. The only people that we believe 
who don't experience shame are people who have no capacity for empathy or connection. So we're talking about kind of folks who suffer from really severe psychopathology. So shame is universal. We think it's probably the most universal human emotion that we experience. It's so striking because by definition, when you feel shame, you feel like you're the only one. Yeah, and it's it's a very formidable emotion to come up against. So now. even even the thought that every single one of us struggles with shame is already shame-reducing. It is. I mean, it's like I tell people the quick one, two, threes of shame. We all have it. We're all afraid to talk about it. And the less we talk about it, the more we have it. (laughs) So you must have very little by now, Brene. I'm sorry? I'm hoping that means you have very little by now. Well, you know, it's interesting because I... I still have it, but I really can tell the difference in my shame resilience. I can really tell... um, my sense, you know, and it's funny because, you know, the first question you answered, you know, why did you do the research? To be really honest with you, um, I became a researcher because it fit perfectly with the fact that I'm a person who has very little tolerance for vulnerability. Um, I, I like to know. I like to be able to be certain. I like to, you know, research is about prediction and control. And so I was very excited to be able to go into these areas that I know were important and to be able to kind of pin them down, and especially around vulnerability. And I think the hard part for me a couple of years ago is when, yes, you know, vulnerability is the core of shame and vulnerability is the core of fear and maybe even anxiety, but it's also the birthplace of hope, of compassion, of love, of belonging, of joy. You know, and so I think when we shut ourselves off from vulnerability to protect ourselves from feeling shame or fear, we also shut down the possibility for joy and for inspiration and for creativity and things and love and things that we really need. So I think in the process of doing this work, what I've realized is that we really, myself included, need to develop a relationship with vulnerability where we can hold space for it, where we can say, you know what, I'm imperfect and I make mistakes and I'm afraid sometimes, but I'm also brave and I'm, and just because I'm imperfect doesn't mean that I'm not worthy of love and belonging. And so I think for me personally, that's where the growth has been. It's such a paradox, isn't it? So if we want to have more joy in our lives, we need to move toward our vulnerability. Oh, trust me, if there was another way, I looked for it. <laughs> I spent lots of years looking. I mean, that piece of research, this idea that we have to walk toward vulnerability and open ourselves up to our own tenderness if we want to experience these things that we're so desperate for, joy and meaning and purpose, really triggered a huge breakdown in me. Hmm. Um, Tell me more about that. Well, it was funny because you know, my therapist calls it a spiritual awakening, but I assure you it was a breakdown. I see. Um, <laughs> it didn't feel better. like it at the time. Uh-huh. Yeah, but it was just, I didn't want to believe it. You know, I didn't, I built an entire career on, you know, hacking into vulnerability and splaying it open and, you know, sh- you know, drilling it down to the code and figuring out how does this work. And then 
five years into the shame research, I decided to ask a new question with the data that I'd already collected. You know, okay, here I understand what shame is. I understand that we all struggle with this need to be to feel worthy, to be able to say I'm enough. But what about the folks I interviewed who really had a handle on it, who were really engaging with the world from a place of worthiness? What did they have in common? And I thought the answer was going to be they had broken the vulnerability code. But Meaning what? What does that mean, breaking Meaning the that they had figured out a way to outsmart vulnerability. To not be vulnerable. Right. right, right. And the truth was they had found the courage to walk into it. Now, it's so interesting because, of course, in, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm scanning in my life and thinking of some people who don't seem to be that way, people who seem to be really solid and really have good judgment and set up a wonderful life for themselves, and they don't go toward their vulnerability. And those, they're, so they're shame triggers in a way because they don't own it and they don't seem to need to. Well, you know, and I, and, and I think there's a possibility that... Yeah, I don't know. I would, I, I would, I, I mean, I believe that those people exist, but I have to tell you, I mean, one of the things that happened is when this research started to emerge, I had a manila folder in front of me, like just like a file folder, and I was like, what am I going to call this research? And so I just wrote the word, the first word that came to my mind, which was wholehearted, because mm-hmm. these people seem to be living this incredibly wholehearted life. They seem to be embracing creativity and kind of cultivating creativity and letting go of comparison. They were cultivating story and really owning their story, even the hard parts of it, and letting go of this idea of what will people think. And the one thing that I saw over and over, and when I say embrace vulnerability, I mean to really live with an awareness that these are the parts of me that are tender. These are the parts of me that can get afraid, can be, you know, I think I would have a hard time believing, to be honest with you, that anyone, to love somebody passionately, to care about something fiercely, is an incredibly vulnerable act. You know, as a parent, you know, to look at your child sleeping and to stay off out of that crazy place where all of a sudden you go from intense love to imagining every horrible thing that could happen to them. Right. Um, to be able to live in that space where I know there are no guarantees, but I'm going to love you fiercely anyway, in itself is an act of vulnerability, I think. I agree with you. I think with the piece that, that I was speaking for as I'm just sitting with it and listening to you is, you know, you were saying that all people sh- suffer or struggle with shame, which I really believe too. I think one of the ways that we can shame ourselves is by comparing ourselves to others oh, yeah. and thinking, well, that so she seems so together. She doesn't have to go to her weaknesses. I, you know, I can be wholehearted by embracing my vulnerability, but that in itself is shaming that I had to do that, and she didn't seem to have to do that. I mean, that was the sort of <laughs> the shaming loop that I was trying to name that I hear so often. It's so common. Yeah, and I think, I don't know. I really think that one of the problems is that we use, we, we think of the term vulnerability as synonymous with weakness. Yes. And I write about this, and, and I thought it was just me, um, that 
It's absolutely not. I mean, even dictionary definition, it's not. You know, weakness is the inability to fend off attack. And vulnerability is defined as the knowledge of knowing where one can be attacked. And to me, if you think about it that way, strength absolutely requires vulnerability. I mean, I was just recently talking to a group of 50 CEOs, and you can only imagine, and talking to them about all men, except for two. How much they wanted to hear about this for Well, yeah, and, but you know what? They were, you know, I got a standing ovation. They were, they couldn't believe it. They were like, yeah, this makes complete sense, but goes against everything that we're told that we're supposed to be by the, you know, the cultural norms around masculinity. But yes. it does it doesn't change the fact that, you know, what I what was successful with them was a sports analogy. You know, that if you had a football team who was getting ready to take to the field and they had several hurt players but they ignored it and they had a quarterback that wasn't doing very well but they ignored it. They completely ignored their vulnerabilities. And then you had another team taking the field to play against this team and they were very clear about what made them vulnerable. They were very clear about where they were tender, where they were open to getting hurt. Which team would you bet on? Right. And all 50 said the team that was clear about their vulnerabilities and were willing to talk about them. It's really, really striking. I mean, we're really talking about self-knowledge. We are. We're talking about self-knowledge, and we're talking about the fact that, you know, I'm a big fan of Miriam Greenspan's work on the dark emotions. Yes. And we're we're talking about the fact that we cannot ignore these really universal emotions and experiences that we have of sadness, of grief, of shame, of disappointment. And what is and, the consequence, would you say, for people when they do try to ignore it? Because I think the, uh, the majority of people in our culture supports it, do try to ignore that. Oh, I do. I think they numb it. And I think that explains why we are the most obese, in debt, medicated and addicted adult cohort in U.S. history. Hmm. And there you have it. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Right. I mean, right. We, you know, we say, God, I feel vulnerable. I feel, I feel out of control. I can't take the uncertainty. Hand me a latte and a banana nut muffin and a cigarette. Right. So we anesthetize ourselves. And we do. We just, we numb out. And we're, you know, we're a, we're a nation of numbers. We, we just cannot hold space for discomfort and vulnerability and uncertainty. You know, we numb out. Another way we do it is we make what is uncertain certain. And that is very clear in politics. There's no longer respectful dialogue and discourse and discussion. There's just screaming at each other at the top of our lungs. In religion and spirituality and faith, there's no longer this idea of the sacredness of living in the question, there's just extremism. Mm. You know, so you see that. So help me understand the link, because I think you're saying something very powerful. The link between not going to our vulnerability, trying to avoid the, the dark emotions, as Miriam calls them, and moving towards these kind of extreme, rigid, rigid certainties. Because vulnerability is basically turning over some control. It's saying, I'm going to love you 
without any guarantees of being loved back. I'm going to put my art out in the world without any guarantees that it will be appreciated or, you know, understood. I'm going to make the decision with my business without any guarantee of financial success. I'm going to make myself vulnerable. And vulnerability is that space where we do not know what's happening. Right, or you could even argue from a religious or spiritual standpoint, I am going to have faith in this without any proof. Yeah. It bearing I'm, bearing the uncertainty of that. Yeah, right. And we cannot hold space for it. We can't we can't tolerate it. And so one of the ways I think that we deal with that is we numb. Or we, we move or we move to these sort of extremist positions. Right. We take of, the, you know, I think there there are three basic ways I think we deal with vulnerability. Okay. Is we numb it yep. and take the edge off. Yep. I think we make what is uncertain and supposed to be uncertain. Mm-hmm, right. Certain. Yes. And what's the third And way? I think we lash out. And I think we discharge discomfort with blame. Mm-hmm. And how effective is that third strategy? Well, you know, if I have one more person ask me to come talk to them about bullying and children, I'm going to just scream because if you want to stop what's happening with kids around bullying, then grown-ups have to start stop bullying other grown-ups. You turn on TV and all you see in these, you know, desperate housewives of Seattle or whatever the show is called, you just see secret-keeping, alliances, bullying. That's all you see. Mm-hmm, right. That so is, we're modeling it for our children. Yeah. We're teaching them. Right. And, you know, if you look at blame, it's interesting from a research perspective, the way it's often described is blame is simply the discharge, discharging pain and discomfort. Mm-hmm. Passing it down along the line. That's it. Just really like almost like electricity flowing through our bodies that we have to shoot out. Does that make sense? Yes, it is. And yes, it does. And then I'm, but I'm really wondering about how actually effective that is as a, as a form of discharge. Forget all the negative consequences to the recipient, which I'm sure are many. I'm wondering how, how actually, how much does it really help that person? Well, it doesn't help because what it does in most of us trigger, is trigger shame. Because we know we're behaving horribly. Yeah, we know we're <laughs> acting out. Yes. I mean, I tell a story all the time that, you know, I'm, I, I'm a total blamer. Mm-hmm. Like when things are, you know, when I was, you know, we just went through this really vulnerable, uncertain time about, you know, my daughter's middle school process. Like where was she going to go to middle school? And I remember, you know, Steve and I came to this decision together. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do this, you know, public school, neighborhood. This is what we're going to do. And then... I started having, you know, second doubts. I started thinking, oh, my God, I don't know if that's a good idea. And one day he just came in the back door, and he, I was just, like, crazy. He's like, how are you? And I'm like, you know how I am? I'm fine. <laughs> you know, if you want to just, you know, why don't we just turn over Ellen to become a ward of the state? You know, like, like you know, why don't we just send her into some, a detention camp? And he's like, what happened? And I was like, nothing happened. And he's like, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Are you, did I do something? And I was like, yes, you did something. This whole middle school thing. And he's like... I thought we decided to get together. Mm. I was like, well, I changed my mind. You know, and it was just this whole, like, whose fault is this? 
If I can blame someone, it'll bring me some comfort. And is the feeling that because the alternative is to accept responsibility for myself, which would shame me further? No, I think as the alternative in terms of vulnerability is there's no one to blame. This is just uncomfortable. There you go. No one has to be bad. No. Yes. This is just hard. Right. Sometimes hard things happen. In fact, often hard things happen, and no one has to be bad. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll, I'll, and, and if you would have asked me, and even two years ago, if you would have said, Brene, is it possible that in you know, 2010 you're going to tell me this? I would have said, no way. But here's what I'll tell you that I've learned in the research and what I'm trying to put into practice in my life. So we still have the problem with holding discomfort, the holding you know, uncertainty and vulnerability and, and not doing destructive things with them, right? What do we do with it? Yes. And you know what I found? That you know, these people, the wholehearted that I studied, tell me what they do with it. They practice gratitude. Even when they're not feeling grateful at all. No, they transform these feelings of uncertainty and gratitude. They find a way to sit with uncertainty, but instead of standing over your child and saying, God, I love her so much, I hope she doesn't get killed tomorrow. Mm. Just saying, I'm so grateful. That I have this being that I love so much. That I have this person in my life. Yes, and there's that, and that is sort of an antidote to the fear that can, the intense discomfort that can grow so much. Right, because it works. what I think, I think what underlies a lot of vulnerability is this feeling of scarcity. You know, Brene, I am so sad that we lost some time at the beginning because we are going to have to stop. And it is such a pleasure to talk to you. I hope you will come back and be my guest again. I would love it. I love talking to you. Brene, if someone wants to get your website, what's your address? It's um, just brenebrown.com, B-R-E-N-E-B-R-O-W-N, brenebrown.com. And your book on vulnerabilities, on imperfection and vulnerabilities coming out this fall? It's coming out October 1st. It's called The Gifts of Imperfection. And they also they actually have it as, on a discount right now on Amazon and pre-orders. So you can do that wonderful. now if you're interested or it'll be out in October. Brene, thank you so much for being my oh, guest. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thanks, Ian. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodgson for putting on the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music, Neil McKenty for being my consultant. If you have an idea for a future show or would just like to be in touch with me, please email me at drnwmpg at gmail.com. Coming up next is Allison with Money Talks.